We know the feeling. We come across something astounding, and we're stopped in our tracks. What does that for Zach is poetry, poetry at its best. But stopped in our tracks is perhaps a misleading phrase, because poetry has power. It does something, goes someplace. It's language that moves like Bob Gibson's fastball, that jumps at the right moment, that breaks open old worlds with surprise, pace, and sometimes abrasion. That's Professor Walter Brueggemann's sense of the power of poetry, saying an encounter like that is an artistic moment in which words are concrete but open, close to our life but moving out to new angles of reality. And as a result, poet Zach Lindsay calls poetry a superpower. And in Zach's poems, there's a marvelous tension resulting from the sound of the words, their musicality, and most music moves. At the same time, Zach's words are concrete, physical in a way. But in the forming Zach does, they open out to new angles of reality, creating a sense of space that we may or may not recognize. Zach Lindsay's poems have appeared in Best New Poets 2020, in Poetry, and the New England Review. Lindsay is recipient of scholarships to the Kenyan Review Writers Workshop and Siwani Writers Conference, while Zach currently serves as editor-in-chief of the Southeast Review. Zach Lindsay will open the Alan Hamilton Dixon Spring Writers Series at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre with a free-to-the-public Zoom reading tomorrow evening, February 17th, at 7 o'clock. We had a chance to speak by phone with Zach about the power of poetry, and we learn, in the beginning was the song, in the beginning was the aria. My experience of language is first physical and is then meaning-making. And so when, when I write, when I listen, the sounds are what stand out to me most. I'm thinking back to you know, early American poets or even early 20th century American poets who speak about the American idiom as being that shaping foundation for poetry, uh, that a uniquely American poetry listens to the sounds of a uniquely American idiom. And for me, meaning starts with the physical pleasure of sound. It's music before it's meaning. And how did that capture your imagination when you were little Zach? Were you drawn right from the start? I read at some point you were in church doing hymns. Sometimes the elevated language of Scripture captures people's ears. Yes, yes. So I was raised in a, a denomination that sung a cappella. And so it was the sound of voices that I was familiar with first in music. Uh, and furthermore, one of my sisters is a singer. She studied opera. And so my house was filled with her practicing since as long as I can remember. <laughs> so elevated music was my introduction to sound. And, and there was so much joy and community and sense of family in listening to everything from church music to, to opera. So even if I didn't understand the meaning, I still knew the feeling of togetherness that I got from singing in a group or for, from listening to loved ones sing. It doesn't bypass the head, but if your sister was really belting out an aria, you could vibrate to it. You're very viscera, <laughs> right? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And it's also the setting. You know, I remember some of my fondest memories with her are 
sitting on the beach and, uh, you know, in the dead of night and, and listening to her sing and us singing those hymns that we were raised singing and the sound of the ocean being the sort of compliment. And I think that's where the physical comes in, in addition to the sound of music, is one's immediate surroundings, the context, the physical environment and context for, uh, for songs. And you talked so well in an interview about how walking is important to you, that you go out there and try to do four miles if you can, but (laughs) but that's how you get the sway, right? Isn't that the word you used? Yes. Yes, the sway, that's right. It's movement, right? It's physical. Virginia Woolf is infamous for having written or at least developed so much of her writing from taking these long walks. And there's something about that motion I'll occasionally have to take a really long drive if I want to visit family, and it's usually at about hour 10 that poems just start flowing out. There's something to be said about the, uh, the kind of hypnotic effect of just putting the body in motion, where you know the critical mind eventually takes its proper place in the background, <laughs> and the intuition and the imagination and the sensory starts to come to the fore. Yeah, but what about the word choice? You have a remarkable range and ability to draw words that are musical in in themselves, but it's not just that you're throwing them together and stringing them on a clothesline. Sure. That's such such a a good and challenging question. (laughs) There's something... One of my mentors, James Kimbrell, says that uh, every poet has their certain strengths, and then they have the things that they need to work on. What comes to me most naturally is the musicality of language. What's most challenging for me is precision. And so for me, the sounds come first, and the precision of diction comes mostly in revision. So I'll start, you know, I think my entire first manuscript is comprised exclusively of the vowel sound E. I think that that most of the manuscript has decided that's the only way to rhyme. And I don't know, maybe that's just the way my mind was working when I was developing these poems, but... You know, for me, the experience uh, of writing them starts with uh, starts that physicality of the sounds, and, and that's something that comes quite naturally to me. What's much more challenging is uh, is to constrain those tendencies, to to disrupt them, to create variation, and and find the best right the best words. I'm trying to remember the quote, but there's something along the lines of poetry is next word best word, something like that. Every year around here, we're delighted to take a month and celebrate poetry in the foreground, and that's April. And we like to have fun with our listeners and say, oh, yeah, do poem in the pocket day. But you have a real wonderful experience of explaining to us about how your pocket is infinitely full and and how your pocket might extend out. Tell us about your own pocket of poems and words. Oh, yes. So the pockets of, of poems that I return to? Yes, absolutely. So I'd, I'd studied poetry for quite some time and, and read a lot of the classics. And, and you know, if I'm perfectly frank, for the longest time, I had a really contentious relationship with poetry. And I've come to learn that if there's something that I feel vehemently negative or positive about, it's probably a passion. And I felt pretty upset about a lot of poetry <laughs> because I couldn't get it. It was challenging. I couldn't understand it. And so what happened is that at a certain point, I had a pen pal who sent me a packet of poems. And that packet was comprised of mostly poems by gay men. And when I read them, a couple of them did for me what poetry is supposed to do. It it moved me both emotionally and intellectually at the same time in a way that that felt like a superpower to me. 
And so I just started hunting kind of addictively for, for any poems that could accomplish that. And so at this point, much to my surprise, you know, graduating with a, a degree in creative writing, I'm studying poetry. And I've read thousands of years of poetry, and I have this, this little, uh, this small pocket of those favorite pieces that just every time I read them, they, they surprise me. And there's something about, for me, it's usually a line that's able to move in about a thousand directions at once. If I can give an example, there's a beginning of a poem called Litany in which certain things are crossed out by the poet Richard Sykin. And the first line of the poem seems so simple. It's one sentence, and it says, every morning the maple leaves. And for me, when I read that, it was a revelation. Which, I mean, when you think about, I don't know, when I think about the words without the context of my experience, it's like, well, it seems pretty simple. Every morning, you know, some leaves. But for me, it was an epiphany because I realized that in that line, it established all the rules of the poem. It told us where we were in time. It told me what I was focusing on. It positioned me physically in relation to the object. And it also gave lush imagery. When I think of maple leaves, I'm thinking of autumnal colors, and I'm thinking of objects in motion. I see the wind, and I see shapes. And that, to me, was just extraordinary, that with the simplest of words and a little bit of alliteration, so many worlds could open up. That's what I'm looking for. That's an image. There's the maple and the leaves and so forth. And you are a visual artist as well. So what about the imagery of poetry and the images you create with watercolors or pen or whatever medium you're working with? Yeah, so... I, you know, I started, I've been a visual artist, I mean, since I could hold an object. Very kindly, my, uh, when I was in preschool, my mom had this little plastic table with watercolors, and I'd come home at the end of, of preschool each day and spend an hour just making little pictures. And I loved it. I, I loved the tactile experience of it. But by the time I graduated high school, painting wasn't doing for me what I needed it to do. Image was not enough in a static form. I needed to be able to speak the image and have it move. And so I'm, I've been kind of returning to visual art lately now that I've spent some time with images in motion through language. And, and what purpose it serves to me more now is a form of, I would almost call it worship. Because for me, when I paint, it takes time. I have to be in a really patient, meditative state of mind in order to do it well. So each shade and shape is, a very extended pause and observation. Poetry for me can be much more dynamic and impatient. And I tend to be a somewhat whim-based person or impulsive person. And so it's really helpful if I can just say every morning the maple leaves and, and then we're done with it. You know, if I'm painting every morning the maple leaves, I've got to spend 20 hours shading in every bit of that piece. So they serve different functions for me now. One of them being more meditative and one of them being slightly more off the cuff, in motion, emotional. What about your portraits? Yeah, well, the, the artists that I've admired lifelong have always told stories. Um, even in a single static image, there's been enough symbolism loaded into the piece that it tells an entire narrative. Uh, and, and so when I look at photographers and I look at painters, I try to emulate those that in a single image can give you an entire context. I'm, I'm thinking, for example, of this fabulous, fabulous picture of a hotel. And it's the middle of the night, and the hotel is all but unlit, and there's one light on in the top, like, right-hand side of the, the, the front of the hotel. And for me, it's just, it's 
talkative because we're in the middle of the night. There's nothing happening there except in that one room. And so you wonder and you try to fill in the blanks. And for me with portrait, each time I'm trying to tell a different story. I, I painted a, a girl I knew in high school named Syra, and she was at a pivotal moment in her life, a, a kind of change where she didn't know how to establish her values. So I gave her horns because the ram is both a, a symbol of strength and of of evil. So as she was considering how to move forward in her life, I thought, well, that's a good way to start there. And I put her in a beaded dress that I uh, I made from something I found at a Goodwill, and, and that just seemed right. And, and so I try to tell stories whenever I'm painting portraits, and I'm find, finding myself moving away from the realistic and, and more into uh, the storytelling. So less focus on the detail, more focus on the fun of the piece. I started out by asking you about the spaces, the worlds that you create in, in your art. You give us, for example, a wonderful reading of your rabbit poem, this story about the two boys, and mm -hmm. the rabbit is talking to them, and then it gets to be a very incredible message at the bottom where the rabbit talks about the interconnectedness of everybody and the mm -hmm. weaving and all of that, and it's quite a space that you've created just through your words and the powerful images, the knife and all of that. That's all very physical but yet you create a, a larger kind of world that's fantastical. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you which part I made up in that poem. <laughs> I made up the framing apparatus, the rabbit, the rabbit being held by the boys, the way the poem opens and the way the poem ends, and the fact that it's a rabbit telling the story. My, my experiences in life are fantastical. Uh, and the story that that poem tells, uh, I, I almost feel this is unfair to the poem, but I'll, I'll just have to disclose to you since you asked. That's true to my experience. I didn't create that world. I had that experience. And it's bizarre. And I've talked to people about it and tried to figure out how to make sense of it. And I couldn't. So it seemed like the perfect place to put the conversation that I had with the priest uh, is into a poem uh, that helps me contextualize the absolutely unbelievable in life. My experiences looking out into the world and encountering such strange beings in my life, uh, as you said earlier, it, it's the physical world. It's looking outward and trying to represent that uh, in a way that's not true, but is truer than true. Uh, so the framing apparatus for me is a way of, of making sense, of contextualizing something that's absolutely beyond sense, that's, that's fantastical. It's all going together to create that effect, and it is mesmerizing. So you are giving us not just, uh, wow, that's something, but you're giving us an, ex an experience, which is what you talked about in terms of understanding for you what poetry should be, that ability to give us an experience or give the reader an experience, right? Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's right. I I'm thinking of... Um, I'm thinking of very early dictums on what poetry should do. And, you know, we have one old, one old uh, white man saying, you know, war warning us in Ars Poetica, do not chew off more than you can handle, you know, <laughs> right, right to your abilities. And we have another that says that the imitation of life is the purpose of good poetry, of great poetry. And so I try to write, I try to, to find the wonder in my own life and bring that to the reader. That's what you were doing, wasn't it? When you were sent that packet of poems, you suddenly said, wow, I want more of this, <laughs> right? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's a hunger. 
Once you find the thing that you like, once you identify that superpower, how can you do anything but pursue it? You're going to be speaking to the Wilkes University students. How do you work with them when you feel the way you do? Do you sound them out and see if they feel the same way and swap stories? Or how do you approach a gathering like this? Oh, well, I'm, I'm excited to be invited to three different things. I'll speak to a modern poetry course, to a workshop, uh, and I'll have the reading. And in the workshop, we're going to play a game. Um, so for me, the most important entryway to poetry is finding a reason to care. And for me, that's, that's part of uh, enjoyment. And so some of the students very kindly provided me drafts of their own poems as well as poems they like. So I'll be looking at those. Uh, and identifying some craft components that we can focus on. And then we'll be playing a game together, the whole point of which is to to find surprise in language. It's a kind of like round-robin type game where each person is responsible for one word or punctuation mark. So I say go, and you say a.m., and the next person says Fahrenheit, and the next person says period. And then we just keep going until we fill out a page. So for me, how I'm starting is with excitement and play, because that's, I mean, that is where I think poetry should start, is, is with that, uh, that fun. And then in a modern poetry class, I'm just so excited to be able to speak to uh, a couple of uh, poets that they're studying at that time, Dunbar and Posey, and then we'll talk. I think they're going to make me talk about my work a little bit, which, you know, I'm, I'm open to it. I guess we'll do it. <laughs> and then the, the reading that night, I'm excited to finally have a manuscript that has a pretty uh, distinct form, and it's, it's almost a story. It has kind of a beginning, middle, and end. And so I'll be reading it piecemeal, uh, sampling uh, poems in the order in which they appear. Do you have a line that you've written that excites you like the maple leaves has done? <laughs> oh, may I read just a few lines? Please give us something that means something to you. We'd love to hear it. Okay, thank you. Toward the very end of my manuscript is a poem called Branches. And like the poem Fingers on a Gay Man, it relies on a fantastical. It makes sense not through realism, but through a metaphor. And so I'll read it. And it's, it's, it's a weird one. I'll warn you. It's a weird one. But I'll read just the first few lines. Branches. And suddenly, expectedly, mothers started to reach their arms, fists, elbows down their children's mouths and throats into the sugar-laden lining of the stomach. Fathers did too. Husbands, their wives, their husbands' throats. Sisters, their brothers, their mothers. And my brothers even reached into a man on the street with a paper crane. We'd been told we would find some new pleasure there. We had a notion the insides held answers to all our untenable questions. You know, if you asked for something that I felt proud of, for like a line that I felt proud of, that was a poem that felt like an epiphany to me, that I could take what I love about painting and visual art, and I could develop it into a poem. And for me, just this, you know, I, I was, so much of the manuscript deals with inherited violence and reenacted violence and interrogating one's own complicity in unjust systems. And I needed a way to paint that through language. And so this did it for me, just this idea that, that we are constantly not just invading each other's spaces, but, I mean, brutalizing bodies, even through our best intentions. 
when we're trying to save ourselves and we're trying to save our loved ones, there are just so many times where we reach too far. And so for me, the notion that that, that reaching too far could then in turn transform into these branches, which are what comes what comes after you start reaching too far. Like, oh, it just felt good to have an image that could feel right and to have an image that could say, like, there is an alternative. This is the way that, that I behave, and I'm acknowledging there is an alternative. And the idea that you call it branches leaves us with many images. It's that kind of open-ended title, all of that, like the genealogy tree and the branches and how that violence is generational and yes. isn't easily solved because it is. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, it is, it's inherited. It's inherited trauma and practices. Um, and it's also the type of thing that when we write our family trees, we have the chance to disrupt those continuities. Poet Zach Lindsay speaking with us from Tallahassee about the power of poetry and reading a few lines. And that's before the opening of the Alan Hamilton Dixon Spring Writers Series at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre. Zach will present a free-to-the-public Zoom reading tomorrow evening, Wednesday, February 17th at 7 p.m. The series will continue one month later, Wednesday, March 17th at 7, with Pupe Misagi, who is visiting assistant professor at the Department of Writing at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, and then Wednesday, April 14th, with Howard Norman, who is a novelist, memoirist, and children's author. To get the link to these events, wilkes.edu slash Dixon, D-I-C-K-S-O-N, wilkes.edu slash Dixon. Tomorrow, February 17th at 7 p.m., it's Zach Lingy, L-I-N-G-E, Lingy, Zach Lingy. That is the Alan Hamilton Dixon Spring Writers Series, and for more information and the links, wilkes.edu slash Dixon, D-I-C-K-S-O-N. Thank you.